good evening. If you want to, you can go ahead and open up to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll get there in just a moment. And hopefully yours is like mine. The end of chapter 5 is right there with chapter 6. It's on a different page. We began last month, I guess it was, someone had asked the question about judge not lest you be judged. And so we spent some time talking about are Christians supposed to judge? And we went through and we clearly saw that Christians are to judge. But oftentimes what happens is people get the term judge confused with rebuke. And we assume that anytime someone rebukes me, they are judging me. But we went and we showed that there are different ways we use the term judgment. There are some times where you actually condemn someone. That would be judgment. There are times where you just have to use your better judgment, your discernment in a situation. We see how that doesn't condemn someone, that doesn't approve someone, that doesn't do anything. That's just you using judgment. And we use the spouse as an example of that type of thing. And so the Bible is very clear over and over that Christians are expected to judge, especially those who are in the body of Christ. We would see that in 1 Corinthians 5 and some other passages. And so following up with that, the question was asked in this way, are Christians only to judge other Christians? You understand that question? Are Christians supposed to do anything with people who aren't Christians? And so they used the passage of Galatians 5 that Michael just read for us as an example. So the works of the flesh are evident. Things that can be seen. Adultery, fornication, drunkenness, lasciviousness. All those different things that are listed there are, what am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to judge someone on that? And that gets us to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where another list is given very similar, beginning in verse 9, where Paul says to these Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're supposed to know this already. Just as Galatians 5 said, as I told you before. What he's telling them is not anything new in Galatians 5, and it's nothing new in 1 Corinthians 6. He has already told them about this conduct, about this manner of life. So the people that he's speaking to are clearly Christians here that he has already taught. But here's the list. He said, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you come across someone who is a thief. Are you supposed to judge that person? Are you the one who is to stand there and condemn them? I don't believe the Bible teaches that we are to do that. I want you to notice back in chapter 5 there, 1 Corinthians. When in their midst there is a fornicator, there is an adulterer. He is sleeping with his father's wife, right? And and it says there in verse 12, What have I to do? Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders, those that are outside the body of Christ? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. 
So is it my responsibility to go up and condemn someone of that? It's not my responsibility. But does that mean I just sit back and I say nothing? That I don't ever tell anyone that they've done anything wrong? Or if you go to Romans chapter 1, and maybe you kind of approve of such things. And again, another long list of sins that are given. But notice verse 32, the very last verse of the chapter. These people, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So maybe not only do I not even speak up and say anything, but maybe I say, you know what, that's, you, you got to deal with that. that. That's you, your choice, you do all that. Well, is that what I'm supposed to do as a Christian? No, I, I don't think we're supposed to sit back and be silent, but yet we are not the ones who condemn, the ones who judge. I want you to think about a couple passages in regards to this. I want you to go back, back to that main passage of Matthew chapter 7. We always quote that very first verse there, judge not lest you be judged, and we don't finish the verse as we well pointed out last time. (laughs) As I didn't finish the verse right there either. (laughs) I want you to consider what he says following verse 5 as he keeps talking about these hypocrites. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Get your life together. Now notice the next verse. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs or swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Is there some judgment that is involved with giving out holy and valuable things? There is judgment that is involved. He says you don't give what is holy to dogs. And the idea of dogs are people that come back and they bite you. And these pigs, they turn and they trample these valuable things because they're coming back at you. And so you as an individual, you're trying to give them what is holy. You're trying to say, hey, fornicators aren't going to make it into the kingdom of God. Homosexuals aren't going to make it into the kingdom of God. Thieves aren't going to make it into the kingdom of God. And you're saying that over and over and they're saying, I don't care. And they come right back at you. And what I have to use as an individual is judgment. Do I keep shoving it down my children's throats? Or do I say, hey, that's you. That's on you. Because that's what the apostles were taught to do. Why don't you go to Matthew chapter 10? When the apostles come through and they give the, the, the cheerful message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, You guys are doing great. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's their message, right, when they go into all these towns. No, that's not their message. Their message when they go into all these towns is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he says, when you go into these cities, someone receives you. Let peace be on that house. But notice verse 14 here of Matthew chapter 10. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Did the apostles judge that house? They did. 
They said this house is not worthy because this house did not accept our message. And so I have to turn to someone else and to another house who will. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. You're not the one condemning them, but they're going to be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. I ain't doing it. God did that. I want you to see that in actual action. Look at Acts the 13th chapter. In Acts the 13th chapter, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch of Pisidia. And they are in a synagogue and they are teaching and they are proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And they're going through and showing how he is of the lineage of David and how all of that belonged to him. And the people said, oh, we'd like to hear you again on this matter next week. So nearly the whole city was gathered together on the next week. And so many people followed them. Now I want you to pick up in verse 45. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was spoken. And notice this reviling him. Remember back to Matthew 7, beware of throwing, giving what is holy to dogs and giving your pearls before swine unless they turn and attack you. What is happening in the synagogue here in Antioch is they are now attacking Paul. They are reviling him because they don't like the message. And so he says in verse 46, they said this very boldly, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside, I'm trying to give you something holy, and you're throwing it off to the side, and here's the phrase, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We tried to give you what was best. We tried to give it to you, but you didn't want it. You threw it aside, and so you have been the ones to judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul wasn't the one making the judgment. They were judging themselves, but yet he had to use judgment of it's now time to go to someone else. We were talking about this this morning after class. First John 5 verse 16, there's a sin leading to death. Now you're supposed to pray for that one. It is hard to make people lost causes. Because we think, man, people, they'll, they'll get it. They'll eventually come around. If I just keep telling them, they'll eventually come around and time will work. Truth is, man, there are some lost causes out there. And as a Christian, I have to be willing to sometimes make some really tough judgment calls and cut loose. And if that's my children, I can imagine how difficult that would be. If that is my family, I can imagine how difficult that would be. Now, that doesn't mean that you cut off your relationship altogether with them. But maybe you just stop trying to throw it down their throats all the time, every time you see them, so that there's always stress that's involved. All those things. I don't really know what the practical solution of that is. Besides, Christians have to use their judgment to understand not everyone is going to obey the Lord. In fact, very few are there who enter. That's just the way it is, as difficult as that is upon us, that's the truth. So who does the condemning of those on the outside? God does. 
God judges. God condemns the outsiders. Acts 17. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And he has raised up one that will that he has appointed to judge them. The one by which he raised from the dead. He gave proof. And we know that to be Jesus. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Truth is, I don't condemn anyone. God does that through Jesus. But sometimes I've got to cut myself loose from outsiders when they continually refuse with their hard and penitent hearts. And that is not easy to do. In fact, that's probably very difficult to do. So is the judgment, here's the the follow-up to that question. So is the judgment different for Christians and non-Christians? Does God judge a Christian differently than he does a non-Christian? I want you to think of a couple passages. I want you to think of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, there probably is some argument about whether or not this is only about idolatrous people. But I'm going to use it very loosely, and not only is it for the idolatrous, but it is for the people that are not worshipers of God, whatever that might mean. Okay? And he goes on and he talks about how they gave up the Creator for the creature. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And the wrath of God, verse 18, is ready to be revealed against them. I want you to notice the phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over. I want you to notice again verse 21 first. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Go back to verse 20. This God that they knew, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, And the things that have been made, and here's the phrase, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. Even these people that didn't worship Him, they understood, they got that there was a God and there was no excuse He gives them over and over and over again, and you can write that down. And he goes down to chapter 2. And he turns to the believing Jew and to the religious individual. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves. You've been out there saying, don't do this, but you've been doing the same thing. But you've been on this whole righteous kick. But notice verse 5. But you, O man, who has no excuse, because you're hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And here it is, verse 6. He will render each one according to his works. It doesn't matter what you do, and you would see that in verse 10. Or verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and the Greek. God shows no partiality. Is the judgment different? 
not much different. God says, if you're a Jew, you can be saved. If you're a Gentile, you can be saved. Or vice versa. And neither one of you have an excuse not to be. And God's not going to show one or the other favoritism. He's going to render each one according to his works. Does that mean it will be worse for the Christian who didn't get it? I tend to believe so, based on Luke 12 and some other places. That the one who knew to do the will, but didn't do it, he'll receive many stripes. The others, they've received stripes, but there's a special many stripes. I think it would be worse for the one that should have known and the one that should have done. But when it comes down to what condemned the individual, it's the same thing. It's sin that condemns. It's not a knowledge or a lack thereof. It is the practice of sin. And so in that sense, the judgment is the same. That they are judged by one thing, one standard. And I want to point that standard out in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That probably gives a lot of people a lot of hope right there. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. You hear my words, you don't do it. You ain't got to worry about being judged because I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. But verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Oh, The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Yeah, I may not be the one doing it, Jesus says, but the words that I speak are. The words that I speak will be what you are held accountable to, and they'll be the ones that convict you. They'll be the ones that condemn you, and you didn't receive those. I came to save you. I came to give you what was holy, but you refused. And so here's what you get in return. So are Christians supposed to judge those that are outside? Not to condemn them. There to reward them, there to rebuke them. And sometimes we got to make those judgment calls. We all have to understand that we're all going to be judged by our obedience to the words of Jesus Christ. The next question that was asked, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is somewhat related. Okay, so Christians, they're not supposed to just... Judge insiders and outsiders are not supposed to judge outsiders, I should say. What about what? What should they judge? Are they judged to only, are they purposed to only judge spiritual topics and spiritual matters? So Christians are to judge, but only spiritual things. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe the answer to that is no. Christians are to judge in very physical things. You remember... How he says they've got all of these trivial cases, verse 2, the end of verse 2. If the world is to be judged by you, are you competent to try trivial cases and the smallest things? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before the courts and go on and so forth? Of course, he's unbelievable. His point to the Corinthians is, you guys have enough 
ability to judge over things in this life. We do that sometimes without having to go to court, don't we? In our families, we don't want to first go to court. We might try to get another family member to go in between us to try to work that out, right? Because we don't want everyone to see it. It's the same thing in the church. We're not a bunch of idiots. We might not have passed the, the bar exam, and we might not be sitting on, well, I don't know what they call it, the, the, what does the judge sit on? In his seat with his little gavel, he got his gavel and his little, his little rope. We might not have that, right? But we got common sense. We know how to work things out. We know Bible principles of love your neighbor as yourself, do all these things, and as he says to them, shouldn't you rather be defrauded? Like, as a Christian, shouldn't there just be some things you're just willing to give up and lose for the sake of your brother, rather than always having to be right? He says, somebody in the church shouldn't tell you that? My brother, you just need to let this one go. You live to fight another day. This one's not worth it. Let this go. But instead, what they were doing is they were going right to the courts, and they were looking like idiots. They were looking like people who didn't have any order. And I like, I'll use the phrase this morning, they were in a lot of disorder. They didn't have anyone they could go to that could finish and work out the problems between them. So I think we see in 1 Corinthians 6 that Christians not only are supposed to judge spiritual matters, but also they are to judge physical matters between one and another as best as they can without going to court because it's a shame. It is a shameful thing. That brother takes brother to court. And I believe that means that is a sinful thing. That we should not take brothers to court, but we solve that inside. That's one of the questions. And here was another one of the questions on that sheet there. It was, are, oh, here we go. It comes from this passage. I want you to go back to verse 2 and verse 3. He says to these Corinthians, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world. If I'm a Corinthian, I'm assuming that he has told me about that before. I am not a Corinthian. He says, do you not know that angel, that saints will judge the world? It's a matter of fact statement that they already know, so continue how he goes. And if the world is to be judged by you, and we can go ahead and take that if out there, and the world is to be judged by you, are you competent to try these trivial cases? And now verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than things pertain to this life? So you can imagine what the follow-up question is. What does it mean that the saints will judge the world and angels. That's a very difficult question. There's several schools of thoughts out there, but I'll give you one that I, that I think makes the most sense to me. We already saw that is it the Christian's place to condemn the outside world? It's not the Christian's place to condemn the outside world. We've seen that. It's our job to rebuke and to warn them of the wrath that is coming. I want you to notice a similar phrase in Matthew, the 12th chapter. I pointed it out this morning in class as we were talking about the Queen of Sheba. 
And you even saw a little bit of this in Matthew chapter 10, where it will be better for the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which, by the way, will it be good for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment? No. He, he used them as an example of disobedience and ungodliness. It's not going to be okay for them. But yet it will be, keyword, better. Again, different levels of judgment and punishment. But notice, in Jesus' day, he got that generation that they keep wanting a sign. And he says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Now I want you to go to verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Yours may say in judgment, because it's our same word. Who will do that? The sons of Nineveh. What did they do? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon if I understand that correctly, there will be people who in the day of judgment will be seated with Christ saying, we did it. And you could have to. And I think that's what is being said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That the saints, the ones that, remember, who rises first from the dead? Those who are dead in Christ shall arise first to be with the Lord forever. They go first and they're with Him. And the statement is made in Matthew chapter 19, I believe it's verse 28 of the apostles, that they will be seated on twelve thrones judging the nations. And I think it's the same principle there. They're not the ones actually condemning, but in their ability and in their willingness in that scenario of Matthew 19, to forsake all and follow Christ, or in the Queen of Sheba's, she came from a great distance to hear the wisdom of God. Or in the case of the men of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of a guy who didn't even want them to repent. How much more for those of us that had it right in front of us all along, that if we miss out, everybody else would be standing there saying, look, it was hard, but it wasn't that hard. You could have done it too. And I think that's the idea, is that you guys are able to understand these difficult spiritual things. What about a simple matter between brothers? You can't figure that out? And so I think that's the idea, is that in the day of judgment, those angels like Satan and the ones that Matthew 25 that are prepared for eternal fire and destruction away from the presence of the Lord... Those angels didn't have to do it. The world didn't have to do that, and we will be, the saints will be proof that God can do that. So then, here's the final two questions. They go together. How true is this statement? All Christians are to judge all situations according to the Word of God. When you throw in the word all situations, that makes it like, I'm like, 90, 90% true-ish? I, like, there are some matters that God doesn't care about. For instance, does God care about when I go home tonight 
If I choose to go down Ridgewood Avenue to Bloomfield, now I've got to take Truby home, so let's, let's disregard that for a second. I've got to go down Ridgewood Avenue, take Bloomfield Avenue, turn left on Liberty Street, and then left on the Park Place. Or would he rather me turn right here on Ridgewood, turn right on Carteret, go down to Carteret, turn left on the Midland, turn right on the Clark Street, then go... He might, right? Like, I don't need the Word of God to make that decision in that situation. But what about situations where there is right or wrong, moral type of situations? The answer to that is wholeheartedly yes. Absolutely, God expects me, as Michael preached the sermon, maybe it was last Sunday morning, so I preached last Sunday morning, two Sunday mornings ago, about we don't dare judge ourselves against ourselves. We judge ourselves against what God has given us, against His standard, as we saw there in John chapter 12, what judges us is the words of Jesus, the words of God. And so we're going to use that standard when we are making discernments. And when we are making, quote, condemnations, we need to make sure that we are standing right where God is standing and what God is saying. But when it comes to other things, sometimes it's just a matter of good, better, or best. Not a matter of right or wrong. And I think even those matters of good, better, and best, it's still a good thing to use Scripture. But they don't. It doesn't have to be. But when it comes to matters of right and wrong, absolutely that is a true statement. Followed up with the closing. person that wrote the question said, I believe we are to judge according to the Word of God. I agree. Using his standard, what are God's standard of judgment? I had to ask them about that question because I didn't fully understand. And what, what the person was asking for is, what are some examples of God when He actually does the judging? So I just want you to, to follow with me throughout Scripture. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is told that his descendants are going to be enslaved. They're going to be put in bondage. But in verse 14, he's told by the Lord, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God told Abraham 400-something years before, a long time before his descendants are ever enslaved, I'm going to judge that nation. So you remember how God judged that nation? How about all those plagues? How about all those firstborn male children and firstborn animals dead? How about all those soldiers wiped out in the Red Sea? So that there was no such lamenting that had ever been done to that point. He didn't wipe them out completely. They were still there. But there was judgment on them and on their gods. But I want you to stay there in chapter 15 here, Genesis, and notice what he says in verse 16. Let's begin in verse 15. He says, As for you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. Man, wouldn't that be great to hear? You're going to die at a good old age, and your life's going to be good. And they shall come back here. That's your descendants after I have judged that. In the fourth generation, why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
He knows that the land he's going to give them currently belongs to someone else, but it's not time to fully judge them yet, but in 404 generations it will be time. And so you get to the days of Joshua, and you go to Joshua, the 10th chapter. And I want you to notice the judgment that is on these. And one of the things that you keep seeing in Joshua chapter 10, beginning down through verse 29, through the end of the chapter, is they didn't leave anyone. There were no survivors. So notice the summary statement in verse 40 of Joshua chapter 10. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the negative and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings, and he left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. That is what God said to do with all of those nations of Canaan was you don't leave any survivors. And so you would see there in verse 42, the reason they won their battles is because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God was the one destroying them. God was the one bringing these judgments. And so they're wiped out. And so you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when the Lord tells Saul, go to the Amalekites and do what? Kill every single one of them. But he does not. He spares the one, King Agag, and he spares some of the best of the flocks. And the Lord rebukes him for that and takes the kingdom from him because he did not obey the Lord. And so notice how he says in verse 20, Saul said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which you sent me, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, blah, 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 blah. And it just goes on and on and on. Verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. And then finally Saul said, I have sinned. Finally he comes to that conclusion. But the point is, that's the way God took judgment on some people. He wiped them all out. Men, women, and children. But he didn't do that with his own people, did he? In Jerusalem, he didn't do that. For Israel, he didn't wipe them all out. But notice in 2 Kings chapter 17, the explanation that the writer gives us why the northern tribes were taken into captivity. It says there in verse, let's pick up verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under their hand and they had feared other gods and they walked in the customs of the nations of the kings and they did this secretly and they were sieged and they were taken away because of their devotion to these other gods. So God did away with them. He took them out Now, there were a few remaining, as there always is, it seems. Because even in Jericho, there was a remnant, right? There were Rahab. There were others that were always there. But God, when He goes through and He does judgment, He wipes them out. So you get to the New Testament, you say, what's a New Testament example of judgment? Why don't you go to Matthew, the 24th chapter. And there are others that we can look at. You can look at the book of Isaiah. You can look at the book of Ezekiel. 
of nations that are listed explicitly that God was going to judge them. But we saw this morning in class that Solomon was told, if you follow in my steps this house that you have built, I will always keep my eyes on it. But if you follow after these other gods, I will turn that into a heap of ruins and the people that walk by will say, well, what happened here? And the answer is, well, they forsook God. Well, Jesus in his day, at the end of of chapter 23 and verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How I would have gathered you like children together as a hen gathers her brood of her wings, and you would not. Again, I want you to go back to that picture of I tried, but you were unwilling. I wanted you. I tried, but you didn't want it. So see, look. Your house to you left desolate. It's kind of like the opposite of what he said to Abraham. You're going to go to your your grave in peace at a good old age. He says to that generation of Jerusalem, Look, your house is about to be empty. It is going to be laid ruins, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus left the temple, this big house, that they took all this great stock in. He's going away. His disciples came to a point out to the buildings of the temple. And he said, you see all these? Verse 2. Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's how God judged Jerusalem. He took out their city and their house that was so important the point that in just a few years there was not one stone left on another. When God wipes people out, He does it fairly, He does it justly, He does it timely, He does it cautiously as we saw last time. It's not just a matter of fact. And sometimes He does that with individuals too. You go back to the Old Testament, you can see Hophni, not Hophni, then yes, but uh, Drawing a total blank on Aaron's sons there. Nadab and Abihu offered the profane fire. Boom. Fire consumes them right away. Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant. Boom. Dead right away. New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their property. They give money. And God still strikes them dead. And when God judges, boy, it is harsh. And it hurts the people that are judged, and it hurts the people that have to see it. It, didn't, it was not pleasant for Jesus to have to see his generation, his city, destroyed. But it was what was right. And so you and I, we should get no pleasure and no joy in having to warn people about the wrath to come. But that should kind of bring a little bit of sadness sobriety and somberness, all those different things are making sure that we are doing our part to be listening to the words of Jesus, doing what He would have us to do so that we have nothing to fear when we stand before Him. If you're subject in any way this evening to becoming a Christian or you need the prayers uh, of the brethren here, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing.